Hello and welcome back to QC Uncut, uncut, unedited, uncensored conversation with local newsmakers. I'm your host, Sean Leary, and today my guest is a longtime friend of mine. Um, he and I used to work together on a comedy magazine called The Dingo back in the early 2000s and mid-2000s, and um, very talented author. He's put out a number of books, and he's got a brand new book out that he's going to be talking to us about, um, originally from the Quad City. And now living in Portland, it is Jason Tannamore. Jason, thanks a lot for being a guest on the show. Thanks for having me, Sean. So, are you originally from the Quad Cities, or am I a damn liar? I, I met you here in the Quad Cities, but I am originally from Chicago, so you could have been from somewhere else prior to the Quad Cities and me meeting you. I like how my I'm, your I'm existence is like tied in with like meeting me. That's how I, I put it. So, are you originally from the Quad Cities? <laughs> I, well, we, okay. we lived in uh, Dubuque okay. for a very, very short time, but primarily I was born and raised in Davenport and then uh, moved over to the Illinois side when I got married and then moved to Portland mm-hmm. um, a couple years ago. So when did and, you... Uh, okay. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was gonna, go ahead. Go ahead. I, no, I was just going to say, it's, you know, we've been back a couple times, but mainly just to get some stuff done on the rentals and it's not really a vacation. It's just kind of coming back to work. And then we head back. It's a 30-hour drive, and we usually take our animals. And sometimes it's fun, and and sometimes it's just driving three straight days, long days, until we get back. Yeah. Um, so when did you first start writing? When you when did you first like you know want to become a writer when you were a kid? Well, I I started writing. I actually started thinking about writing back. I want to say the late 90s. Uh, growing up with uh, immigrant parents, yeah, they it was nothing I ever thought I could do. It was, you know, we had to go to school for something practical, so I went to school for accounting and practiced as an accountant back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And then, but I just always wanted to do creative stuff, and so I started writing. I read a lot of Dave Barry at that time, and uh, started wanted writing like humor type material. And then I think it was probably 99 when I really thought I'm going to just start dabbling with stuff and just wrote a couple columns for the college paper at uh, Western Illinois and then met you and then did some other things and kind of primarily was just doing that. But I think it was, I read Dave Barry's book, actually Big Trouble, and I thought like, oh, this this is just the funniest thing ever. And so, yeah, he had a couple of stories that were more, uh, you know, longer types of form. And so uh, that's when I wrote this book called Hello Lesbian that just kind of sat around. And, and really that was the genesis of, of what's going on now. But I dabbled in media and then wrote novels, but it just got to a point where I think I was stretching myself thin. And so I just decided to pick one, and, and that was uh, novel writing. Now, you did stand-up comedy for a while, too, didn't you? I did. I did. Um, I loved it. I loved doing stand-up. I didn't care to tell the same jokes over and over again. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the traveling was more, especially when you're starting out, just to drive a couple hours to do 10 minutes or less. was. I, I didn't really care for that part, but I loved going up and telling stories. And so after about, I think it was about seven years, I just decided, yeah, I think I'd, I'd rather, I think I could provide more value written word as opposed to doing stand-up. I feel like doing stand-up every now and again, I, I, and not really on stage, but just writing stupid material and trying it out and dumb on random people uh, <laughs> down in Portland. No. <laughs> um, so random people. Do it, do you go down that. to the bus stop and just start, you know, hey, <laughs> tell me what you think of this bit. <laughs> Oddly enough, they sort of dovetail with each other. Yeah, you know, the, right, the right. homeless provide so, a convenient audience for the struggling comedians. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and, and, there's no, and there's no money in it. And I have friends since I covered stand up. I have friends that have been doing it for twenty years, uh, and I just feel like they're just going to be career club comics. Right. You know, kudos to them for wanting to do that because I think that's an entertainment that uh, is value valuable, especially in some of these smaller markets. But I couldn't imagine just doing that for years and years and years and essentially 
Now, when you and I first first met, it was like I don't know, it was around two thousand or something. So you had just you had just started kind of making that transition over to writing. What was um, like before we met and, and you started writing for the Dingo? Um, what were some of the first things that you started writing, and what was that transition like? Were you really nervous about you know going from accounting and going from something that's more conservative? And um, also, how did your parents and the people around you that were used to, you know, more conservative Jason um, react to some of the stuff that you write about? Because, you know, I mean, the stuff you write about, it's like, you know, that, and that's why you and I got along so well is that you write about a lot of weird things. And I love I'm the same way. I write about a lot of weird stuff and my humor is kind of off kilter. And so is yours. And so it's not yours traditional, you know. Um, you know, take my wife, please, type of humor. So, um, so how, how did the people around you react to that? The fact that your your humor is distinct and it's kind of you know offbeat. Yeah, you know, it's funny because when I was in college and I was working as an auditor at a firm, a lot of my interaction was with clients. So, a lot of that interaction was humor based. It was just like kind of making people laugh and entertaining people. And what I hated the most was sitting down and writing the auditor report or the financial reports, whatever, because it was very mundane. And you had to get to a certain number in accounting. It had to tie out to something. And I remember working my accounting firm uh, back in the late 90s and during tax season. It was, I just felt like I didn't, I didn't have a break. And just and you're, I'm sure you're the same way, but like if you're a creative person and you go along bouts without doing stuff creative, like I was getting, I just got depressed. Mm-hmm. And so when I was working all the time, um, I, I just, you know, I just fell into this, this depression and this kind of life that I'm like, I don't really want to do this. So I remember just quitting, and I remember calling my mom and saying, "Hey, I, I'm going to leave my accounting firm." And she's like, "Oh yeah, you're gonna, you got a, another job?" And I said, "No, I'm going to quit to stand up." <laughs> and that was the first time I bombed. <laughs> um, I mean. some of the things that kind of inspire you describe your writing to um to folks out there i would describe it personally like you really you're you're obviously your sense of humor is kind of like that dave barry sort of off beat kind of um funny sort of sarcastic but then you also have this sort of strangeness like chuck palahniuk who uh you know Um, wrote flight for those of you who are like who's that guy they sort of remember the name that's the guy who wrote fight club and he has a very distinct style in regard to that where he sort of explores the darker side of humanity but um but your stuff does so in a humorous way and kind of you know pokes fun of a lot of those oddities yeah yeah i i don't know why dark humor i i i'm literally like the guy who watches that train wreck because I, and I can't stop watching it. Uh-huh. And it's not because I want to see, you know, death or any sorrow or anything like that. It's just, it's so intriguing to me. And one of the reasons why Polnick was such a big influence to me is because I, I don't think, I don't know if I have like reading comprehension issues, but I, I'm a very slow reader and a lot of the time my attention is drifts a lot. So I never really got into to like 
Stephen King's there's a lot of detail or anything. It was more, if you read Fight Club and his subsequent books, it was very, uh, he, he, he kind of does a verb on top of verb and the action's always, always right. continuing. And so it kind of kept my attention that way. And it's weird because there's, there's books that I read and then I, I don't finish and then two or three years later I'll read it and I'll like love it. I'm like, God, I can't believe I didn't finish it. And I, I think it's just, I don't know, it's just weird because, in it, which is, to me, being someone who writes novels is, is just, just kind of sounds very unusual because, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you want to be a good writer, you got to be a, a reader and all, mm-hmm. all these things. But right. it's just one of those things, like, I can formulate the story and, and a lot better, more fluid than actually writing it out. And that first draft is, I call it, like, conquering the blank page. And it's just the most intimidating thing to get through but once I get through that it's the editing and the you know the all, tying all the loose ends is what I really enjoy mm-hmm. but I find just weird ass stuff intriguing mm-hmm. and I don't know it's just odd and I don't know where my sense of humor comes from but I, I do like some of the silly silly stuff but the dark humor for some reason and I can't even really pinpoint it why but it's just so intriguing to me well, and you combine that, you have that combination of that kind of, you know, wacky, goofy stuff, and then there'll be something out of the blue where, you know, where it's it's very dark. And it's it's a, it's a cool style that you have where it's kind of that combination of the silly and the dark. It's not overwhelming, and I think, like, is it something, because I, I find myself being the same way, where I have, like, really snide, sarcastic, dark humor, and then I'll do something that's completely silly and goofy, and I, you know, in looking at it, I think it's, I don't ever like going too much of one way. I don't want to be confined to one sort of genre. I don't want to be confined to one sort of style. And it's almost like the whole laughing at a funeral type of thing. When you feel like you're getting too serious, it's like, okay, I've got to tell a joke to lighten this up because, man, this is getting too heavy for me. Now, do you feel the same way when you're when you're writing? Like, you know, you'll get to, like, too much to one side, and then you'll be like, okay, i got to pop this balloon. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think, I think when, you, when I feel like it, it's too intense for me, then I think that's my sign where mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, this needs to be a little bit light. And that's why I like that adding that other character there that kind of is the um, – you know, if you look at Seinfeld, for example, one of my favorite sitcoms is that there's four unique personalities all contributing their own different type of humor. Right. You know, Kramer was always the physical humor. Jerry was always the serious kind of sometimes dark humor. George was the dumb idiot. And then Elaine was kind of that keep everyone in check type humor. But like, just and, and I think that's kind of how I um, make it through as well. But because sometimes there's times where I'm like, I, I'll read like Freddie Sales, Chuck Pollock. You know, all these people in a row, and I'm like, I can't read. <laughs> yeah. I can't read this because even for me, it's too, it's too crazy. So I, I'm the same way. Like, I don't want to get and get locked down into one genre um, because I think I do have a, a kind of a roundabout personality that um, that can tackle all types of different styles. And I agree. I'm the same way. Like I love stupid puns. Would mm-hmm. I include in a book? Maybe it wouldn't be 100% all about puns. It just might be a, a character that does it or something. But it's just I call it kind of like the Will Ferrell. Like I hate Will Ferrell as a main character. I love him as like a a, a side character, mm-hmm. as a bit character, just like Jack Black. I can't watch a movie where they're the stars, but if they're in there, I think they add that perfect amount of humor. Uh-huh. Now it's funny you mentioned like going back to reading novels that you didn't finish because I'm in the midst of finishing up a novel right now and as part of that I was going back and I was um, I had a laptop breakdown and so I had to go through my old stuff on the laptop and pull it off the laptop and stuff like that and I found some of my old stuff and it's funny because I've mentioned this before on Facebook before where people love to argue with one another over you know meaningless bullshit and um, I'm like you know I don't I don't know I can't 
I mean, there are certain things, obviously, there are certain lines in the sand that you don't want to cross, but I mean, a lot of times they're just meaningless disagreements. And I'm, and I've said this before, man, I don't disagree with my, or I don't agree with myself a lot of times. I mean, I'll go back and read things that I, I read, I wrote five, 10, 20 years ago, and I disagree with me. So how can I expect anyone to agree with me 100% of the time? And so I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking back at this stuff on the laptop and it's just weird. Cause it's like a, at first, I'm like, man, it's like a different person wrote this. But then again, I stopped. And I'm like, yeah, a different person did. That was me back then. That, that was my thought process back then. That was before I went through all these experiences that have got me to this point. Um, do you feel the same way? Do you go look back at some of your old work and how does it sit with you? I mean, does some of it, like I said, some of mine, I look back and I'm like, man, that's really good. And I agree with that. And man, that was really well written. And then there's other stuff that I look at and I'm like, that's fucking cringy. I can't stand it. You know? Yeah, it's awful. And so I'm the same way. And if you didn't, if you didn't involve as a person and even as an artist, I think that there's a problem. And that's why I hate like some of these politicians and shit. In 1993, right? Yeah, no shit. It's like 40 years ago, for Christ's sake. Yeah, Uh come on. We all evolve. If it's new information or we grow, then that's fine. Acknowledge it, accept it, and then move on. But yeah, I still look at Anonymous, which you know, Publishers Weekly Star reviewed it, and I I love that whole concept. But I every now and again, I'm just I'm just bored, and I'll just read start reading a chapter and I'm like God I can't believe I wrote this mm-hmm. there's a lot of like really bad stuff in it and but that's the thing though I don't know about you but I wouldn't change anything right you know, I, I don't want to compromise anything I did 10 years ago if you don't like it fuck, I don't, I'm not talking about it anymore I mean let's just move on and, and you know hate me for what I just put out now that's right <laughs> There's plenty of reasons to hate me. You don't need to go back over my old tweets. Yeah, let's talk a little bit. Let's talk about. I know I was there. Yeah, right. Don't have to tell me. Yeah, I know. It's it's like I I hate me from ten years ago. You know, I mean, I really I I look at like some of the some of the shit that I wrote when I was in college and stuff, and and I don't like me. I mean, some of my old columns from college, I look at it, I'm just like, what an asshole. You know, I mean, I don't I don't like me then. So, um, what you know, it's especially interesting now in the time of like cancel culture, where people will go back and fish people's tweets out of the trash from ten years ago or something or stuff on social media that they did and then they'll try to cancel them and um how do you feel about that because i mean both you and i as comedians and comedic writers you know we share a certain sensibility and and, uh, times change and i mean the stuff that like we did with the dingo was really raw and it was like you know really raunchy and uh you know, especially, you know, at the time I remember when we were doing that, um, it was people forget what it was like during George W. Bush's presidency. Now everybody looks at him as, oh, he's the nice guy who gave Michelle Obama a butterscotch. But back, you know, 20 years ago, he was, a, you know, the guy who was marching us off to war with Iraq who didn't attack us and people were pissed off about it. And a lot of the stuff that we were doing was very punk rock in terms of, you know, comedy and, and stay, you know, kind of ripping on the authority figures of the time. And, um, you know, some of it certainly, you know, look back at it and you're like, ah, oh, that's kind of dated. Um, but some of it still stands up as being, oh, you know what? I had a good point at that, at that juncture. Um, yeah. but, but people, you know, might look at that and go, oh my God, that was so raunchy or that was so R rated or that was so like over the, over the top, um, because times have changed. Um, how do you feel about that? I mean, people going back and potentially looking at some of your old stuff and being like, that's problematic. It's like, well, yeah, no shit, but, but I've changed. It's Correct. 20 years ago. You know, well, I think, I think it's easy. I think it's convenient to try that. It's just like, you know, I kind of like it to someone peering into their girlfriend's or sister's diary. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to find something, right? right? Like, why would you look through it? Right. You're trying to find a reason to either cancel or, or, and, politics or whatever, you know, something damaging, but it's just a convenient way to kind of stretch or reach for a point that you really don't have it out elsewhere, because if you look at some of these both right and left sides, they're like, well, you said this, you said this, and you never fact check your own side. You just kind of take it for what it is, because right. in theory, agree with them. And so, do I necessarily think so someone should be canceled for something they did 20 years ago? 
me that I, you know, I said some disparaging remarks out of context. I think that's something some people should look at. But when you read like networks, just um, who was it? Uh, Chris, uh, um, the guy who who hosted uh, the Walking Dead after with uh, what was the guy's name? Oh, Chris Hardwick. Chris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hardwick. Yeah. And they canceled him like right away. Like I, I still don't even know what happened. Like was he? I mean, I think he was clear back. No one was there. He was, he was cleared from what I understand. It was like an ex-girlfriend of his that, and that's the other thing is like, you know, you look at it, it's like, well, yeah, it's your ex-girlfriend. And sometimes you have bad breakups and somebody's an asshole or it's an ex-boyfriend or whatever it is. And, and they got a, they got an ax to grind. They got a grudge. You know, you got to continue. You got to, you got to consider the source. Yeah. When you, when when you rely on the public to, you know, to kind of carry you through these times, it's, I think it's a tough. It's tough. I mean, if you said, "Hey, should this person be canceled?" I really have to take a lot of things in consideration, mm-hmm. as opposed to just one tweet from twenty years ago. And I will say this, though: I am glad that I was not a teenager now versus when I was. Oh yeah. Because um, I think you and I both grew up in an era where, yeah, you know, it was. I remember watching a laundry commercial with an ancient family. How do you get these things clothes so clean? Ancient Chinese yep, secret. Exactly. You think about it now. Yeah. yeah, it's like what the. But that's that's the era we grew up in. Right. And I used to say, I hate to say, I used to say stupid shit all the time when I was younger. Right. Um, how would that pan now being taped just by saying that out of context and all that? I mean, I don't, I don't think it's fair. But when someone is out to get you, much like looking at something twenty years ago, there's no reason. It was a kid that was raising money for the the beer. Yeah. I I remember. Yeah. Like, hey, this he said this twelve years ago or whatever. I'm like, okay. Like, really? And you're obviously trying to find something yeah. to, you know, whatever reason, you're trying to find something to basically rain on this dude's parade when he always, you know, he's not thinking about that shit. Well, yeah. So yeah. I don't, yeah. Well, I think that, the, you know, oftentimes, and I've always said this about, you know, when people have, you know, talked shit about me or whatever, I've just been like, you know what, those people were looking for a reason to dislike me. Or they were people either look for a reason to dislike you or they look for a reason to like you. And when something comes up and there's a negative thing that happens in your life, um, you find out who your friends are and you find out who the people that weren't your friends. And it's kind of like, I mean, when I got laid off at uh, the dispatch and you know, all the people who were really my friends, you, you, like you being one of them and a bunch of other people who I'd worked with and, and did stories on and covered, um, you were still my friends. You guys still, you know, were like, oh, it's it's Sean. He's my buddy. Uh, but the people who were just basically using me to get coverage and couldn't have cared less, boom, they disappeared instantly. And it's the same thing with anything. Is You know, somebody, you know... It, People are jealous, people are petty, people are, you know, looking to virtue signal about this or that or to make themselves look better because it's easier to tear somebody down than it is to build yourself up. Building yourself up actually takes work and fortitude and persistence, whereas tearing somebody down can be done very quickly. And I think people go and look for these things to try and tear others down to make themselves look good. And like you said, I mean, there are certain things that you know, are, are a lot more unforgivable than others. And we need to look at the context in which they were, the perspective in which they were, and and also recognize the fact that there are different times and people evolve. And it's like you and I said, man, a lot of the old commercials and shows and things like that <laughs> are so offensive now, but we didn't know it back then. And I mean, when, when we were little kids... You know, my I remember my my grandparents were racist as all heck. Oh, yeah. They were totally racist because they were they were old. I mean, and I this was I was growing up in like you know the, the, this is like the seventies and eighties, and like, you know we were still like it was it was you know being raised by these people that were just had these antiquated attitudes, and it wasn't really until I always, I always talk to people about like you know what. Um, I was talking to somebody about this recently and they were saying like, you know, you don't seem, man, nothing seems to phase you in regard to like race or gender or, um, you know, you know, trans people or anything like that. Why, why are you so laid back about that stuff? Or why are you so cool about that? And I said, I've thought about that. And I'm like, part of it is because, you know, my grandparents and even my parents, 
Well, my mom's side of the family more than my dad's. They were like that. They were, you know, a little bit more, you know, racist or transphobic and, and homophobic and stuff like that because that's the culture in which they were raised. And I think Generation X, you know, which of which you and I are both members, it's like, you know, we rebelled against that in a lot of ways. And you look at the people who were kind of like our pop cultural heroes growing up. Prince, Michael Jackson, Boy George, for crying out loud. Boy George, the Eurythmics, all these like people that were gender bending. And most, a lot of them were African Americans. A lot of them were, you know, um, people of color. Uh, Bill Cosby, I mean, before Bill Cosby was found out to be a total creep, um, Bill Cosby was like one of the our biggest heroes because the Cosby show was just huge. Michael Jordan, all these people, they were different people of color. You know, you had like people who were bending gender norms and stuff. And to us growing up during that time, that was just normal. You know, I mean, it didn't seem weird to us. Those were just our heroes. And so moving into this new society, I think it just feels normal for us and it's just kind of like oh yeah well that's so and so you know that's just the way they are and it's just it's a good change for society and I think that people underestimate that the importance of having pop cultural figures and icons um, that reflect those things because it's like the scene in, um, in Do the Right Thing where they point out Sal's Pizzeria and he has all the African-American athletes on the wall and he's like, how can you be racist when all these people are your heroes? And it really does make you think about that. And it's true. Is If somebody through entertainment or through sports or whatever is bringing you joy and is making you happy, it's really tough to reverse that and then be biased against them on something as superficial as the, the their skin color or the way that they were born right. that they have no control right. over. No, I agree. I remember, uh, I think it was Bob Dylan, someone asked me, he said something about country music. He's like, I, I don't want, I don't hate country music because I don't want to hate something I don't understand. And I think it's, that's kind of my thing. It's like, you know, some things are, hey, that's just not my thing. Right. But I'm not going to sit there and crush it or, or think negatively about it because there's no value to that other than oh I, mean, I get to somehow make myself feel better and I think that's a lot of insecurity and, and ignorance and unfortunately that's you see a lot of that more and more now I think than it was back then and maybe that's social media maybe that's what's going on in politics right now but um, no I agree I, I'm glad that I kind of was born and raised in that the era that I was uh, versus now or 20 years prior mm-hmm. so, so speaking of Jason why do you hate country music used to work with me um, at the well not only with the dingo but also the dispatch and stuff you used to do some writing for me when I was entertainment editor there and you and I both interviewed a lot of a lot of celebrities a lot of famous people and hung out with a lot of celebrities and famous people who are some of the people and you and I have swapped stories about these some of these people too <laughs> who are some of the people that stand out in your mind as being the, the best or worst famous people to, to meet or hang out with you know or, or, um, I can, I can think of a few myself. I I I go ahead. I can think no, of I, a, one of my favorite stories. I was is uh, when I interviewed Bill Engvall. Uh-huh. I interviewed him three times. He's a blue collar comedy guy, nice guy. Yeah, and he used to come to the Adler every year. And we would do the same twelve minute interview, phone interview. And I, I, I think he remembered me after a couple times. And I remember uh, one the third time he. Uh, came to town, I went down to Penguin's Comedy Club when I was down in Bettendorf, and Joey Diaz was headlining. And I remember hanging out with him and Nan down there when, when she was managing it. Yeah, yeah, Nan. And the phone uh-huh. rang. Yeah. The phone rang, and it was Bill Engel's manager. And he says, Bill just finished his set at the Adler, and you know he misses the, the hot club atmosphere. Can he come down and do a set? And she's like, well, I've had Joey. He's the headliner. And Joey's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. If you want to come down. So Engwell comes down with his manager and as like as soon as he comes in, everyone's like, Oh my god, you know, and so he's shaking hands, taking pictures, whatever, and he comes into the little office area, you know what I'm talking about. It's not very big. Yeah, yeah. And they he 
himself. And like, as soon as he heard my name, he was like, holy shit. He's like, all the times I talked to you, I always thought you were just this old white dude. Because <laughs> that's how I speak. And I said, oh, every time I talk to you, I, I, I know you're a fucking hick. And we got a laugh out of it. <laughs> uh-huh. But it was just one of those weird things that uh, it always just, re- I remember, um, you know, he was a nice guy. And I remember me, him, and Joey were having drinks. And Joey saying, this is the worst joke in the history. A Cuban guy, a hick, and a Chinaman walk into a bar. And it was just a good time. Uh-huh. And um, uh, as far as just like weird people, I remember... Uh, one of the weirdest people was, was Billy Corgan when I interviewed him like I mean you've done enough interviews where you know I would have some kind of general questions or ideas and then I would just ask it very open ended so they speak and then I I remember just like taking a sip of water and Billy Corgan was the king of like one word answers it was like no yeah, yeah. no and I was like oh shit and I had, like yeah, the whole thing I had water in my mouth trying to swallow just so there was no weird silence but other than that I mean it was just it's the same. It's like they're probably, they probably do a million interviews and the fact that someone remembers me is, you know, I always got a kick out of that. Well, Billy's kind of an unusual guy. Before, because I grew up in Chicago and I was there when, before Smashing Pumpkins became huge. And I remember, yeah. like, um, my sister was, because I was kind of a tangential part of that, like the outskirts of that whole scene. And my sister dated a guy who uh, was in this band called Busker Soundcheck, which used to open for Smashing Pumpkins, like back before, again, before like when maybe when Gish was out, but like before, certainly before Siamese Dream, before they became like huge, huge. Um, And um, and I remember meeting him and I remember like to the point where like me and my friend Sam um, we're gonna looking at like the gigs that were going on that weekend in Chicago, and we had already seen the Smashing Pumpkins like a half dozen times. And we're, oh, the Pumpkins are at the Metro, and we we're like, ah, oh, fuck that. Well, we've seen them a bunch of times. Let's go see. I remember. We, let's go to see EMF. EMF. I think we're playing at the. Remember EMF? Unbelievable. Um, at the Aragon, I think. And then, of course, like a year later or whatever the hell it was, like Smashing Pumpkins were huge. And he was always kind of an offbeat dude then, too, like back even before they became famous. So, um, who are some of the people like um, that? Anybody stand out in your mind as, as being like a real jerk or somebody that you were really intimidated by meeting? Um, there was a guy, I'm not going to name his name, who was kind of a, not a jerk, but more of just kind of a chip on the shoulder type guy for no reason. Mm-hmm. He was uh, he was a headliner coming through Penguins. Not really a big name. I think his biggest credit was maybe like Carolyn's Comedy Hour or something. You know, one of those, it was H- when HBO had those kind of uh, uh, variety shows of comics. And uh-huh. I think that was like his biggest credit. And I remember trying to set something up with him, and he was just, you know, we couldn't get any, you know, normally I try to get a phone call, obviously, or in-person type thing, but, like, we couldn't even get that because it was always scheduled or something. And I remember saying, I'm just going to email you some questions. I need to get those done. And I remember him being so, like, adamant about uh, wanting to not do it by email. And I remember him saying, well, I like the way, you know, I want to I wanna be able to hear it come out of my voice when I answer it was almost very very like wow you just want to hear yourself talk and I remember <laughs> it just made me laugh and I you know, it was getting so close I'm like dude how about I email it to you and you can answer it on a voicemail you can hear yourself talk all you want you know I don't have time to, to get it done and he, we ended up not doing it and that was kind of like my first instance was like wow what a what a you know I've never had that because everyone has been very very yeah. nice um, as far as intimidating not really, you know, I, I felt like uh, even the bigger names were a lot more laid back than some of the mm-hmm. mid names. Yeah. You know, so I remember when I interviewed a, a Chad Smith from Red Hot Chili Peppers, like, he was the nicest dude in the world. He apologized for calling, like, Dane Cook, he texted me, like, dude, I'm running five minutes late. And then, you know, he probably had a thousand interviews that day. Right. You know how that works. Yeah, they sure. just line them up, and, and he was so freaking nice. Uh, but some of these, like, one's like who the hell are you again or you know you're what is you're coming you took eighth and what right in this competition that have the bigger egos and, and that always just bothered me i'm like what is it about and maybe that's why they're not 
know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same same here. Um, the one person I remember being very intimidated by, but who was a fantastic guy, and I, it, I, it was like a thrill of my life to meet him. But I was just intimidated by because, to me, he was such a legend as George Carlin. Um, I mean, I grew up listening to George Carlin and just idolizing George Carlin, and I was going into that interview, I was just like, holy crap, I'm actually going to get to meet George Carlin, I'm actually going to get to talk to George Carlin, and he was just the nicest dude, I mean, he was so cool, and um, could not have been nicer, and and was just, you know, you hope that your heroes are actually going to be are going to live up to their, your your advanced billing in your head, and in in George Carlin's case, he actually did. So, well, I, mean, I think it means so much more to you too. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you know, and it could be the it could be the, the opposite too. Like, God, I had such great you know admiration for this person, and they ended up being a total douche. Right. And luckily for me, I didn't really this guy. I didn't really know anything about him, so it was more like, okay, well, whatever, he can be that dude. No. The Zer Times, and I found this too. Okay, like I'll give give you an example. Okay, like in your comedy, you'll you'll make fun of somebody, or if you'll like write a column or something, and you're making fun of a celebrity, and then you'll meet the celebrity, and then they're actually really nice, and you have a hard time making fun of them afterwards. Like I had that with, with Billy Ray Cyrus. Billy Ray Cyrus used to make fun of all the time, like when you know I was in high school and college and stuff like that, and like and then. I met him and I got to interview him like a couple of met him a couple of times and hung out with him like you know backstage and stuff and he was just the nicest dude hey do you want a beer hey blah 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 just shooting the shit and everything else just really really cool guy and then afterwards I found it difficult to make fun of him or use him as a punchline or anything because I'm just like I've met him and he's actually a really nice guy so you know I don't want to be a jerk to him same with me with with Dean Cook Uh and it was because everybody had the same impression about him Right. He was a hag and wasn't funny, and, and I think you know, looking looking back at it, um, you know, the jealousy, the the career that he has that you want, you know, I mean, and I don't know enough about the situation, but I, I'm the same way. I, I was just kind of bought into the. I don't understand why Dan Cook's funny, and that was really the extent of it. It was like I hate the Yankees, I hate Dan Cook, I hate you know all these things that everybody hates mm-hmm. because they're top at what they do or they're so famous for what they do then I was the same way I'm like okay he was actually he probably was the nicest guy I one of the nicest if not the nicest guy that for people that I've interviewed now let's talk a little bit about that and and I'm I don't know you know maybe I'm being stereotypical and saying you know living out in Portland Jason you probably deal with this a lot um but uh, the the fact that that people do that, where they automatically hate something because it's popular, and they don't recognize the fact that like a lot of times hipster culture is in in and of itself such a dogma. Like, oh well, you gotta like this. Well, you've gotta like this band, or you've gotta like this comedian, or you've gotta think that this is cool, even though like you're just as bad as all the people that are you know, quote unquote, part of the popular crowd, you're just as exclusionary, you're just as dogmatic in regard to the things that you find cool. And if it's not within that little group, it's not cool. And really, you know, the coolest people are those that are open-minded and have much more wide-ranging tastes and stuff and are just like, you know what, I like this and you might not like it and that's your own opinion and that's fine if you don't like it, but I, I enjoy this. And and I, I found that to be kind of, you know, I mean, sort of making fun of, there's, I mean, the world is hard enough as it is. Life is hard enough as it is. You know, people need to find joy where they can get it. And as long as it's not hurting anybody else, if you like you know, Nickelback or whatever, far be it from me to tell you that you suck for liking something that brings you happiness, you know, whether or not it's my preference or not. You know, one of the things that I do like and enjoy about Portland is it is very, very liberal in the sense that it's very Mm -hmm. open-minded. If you want to walk down, I'll give you an example. My wife works for... Well, I'm just making a cheap shot on Portland, Jason, as a joke. So I... (laughs) I've been there before. I know, I know it's a it's a cool it's a cool place, but you know, go ahead go yeah. ahead. I, I'm just no, you know, throwing in a little joke there. For a federal agency, and there's a, a person that she, she works with who wears a women's skirt and heels, and it's very. 
very unusual because he dresses normal everywhere else, talks normal, and it's like nothing phases this person. And it's people, he just walks, you know, I always see him outside walking around, but, um, and that's what it is. It's like, I think, I think when you get there, so diverse and so open-minded that I don't even think about stuff like that. I mean, you just see the weirdest type of people walk in, and it's just like, you know, I'll hold the door for you. I mean, it's just one of those things. Like you don't, you know, the Quad Cities. I grew up here. You, you live here. You know, it's, I don't. Know, it's kind of conservative, I think, mm-hmm. um, in the sense that you know it's very family ties and kind of. I don't want to get too, uh, but I feel like things that would get oh you can get away with in Portland. Um, you probably couldn't do here without people looking at you or criticizing you. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, in that respect, uh, I, you know, that's one of the things I do love about it. You know, some of the protest type stuff I, I don't care for, but it doesn't really impact me where I live. Um, just down, it all happens downtown, but, um, you know, there's stuff that happens in the Quad Cities. It's not to that extent. What what is it like there? I mean, obviously, you know, you're there living in Portland, and we hear a lot about it on the media. And depending on what media it is, you know, you you know, you look at the right wing media, and they're like, Portland is anarchy, and it's completely, it's like Lord of the Flies, you know. Um, what? But but then again, you know, the the more rational media, they're just kind of like, oh yeah, you know, it's a space downtown where there are a group of people that are you know sort of squatting and protesting, and, and that's about it. So what what's the what what is this bit, you know, coming from somebody who actually is there in Portland? What is his, what is it like? What has it been like in regard to the protests? What you see on the news does not represent what's happening, and I've seen like you don't say from yeah, it, it, what all that protest, and all the the smoke bombs, all that stuff is like literally happening in a one to two block span in front of the federal courthouse, and that's kind of what they're guarding out of the courthouse, damned in courthouse type stuff, and so. Like you can walk downtown. I've been downtown when the riot police were out, and to my left, there's a food cart, and people are like just getting stuff at the food cart. And then to my right, there was these riot police just waiting for something to happen. And in some of these protests, you see like families come out. It's almost like a weird parade. And but to me, is that you know when it first started, when George Floyd, the whole George Floyd incident, it was there's a lot of protests that were uh, you know surrounded or around that subject and then I really think a lot of these extreme right and left groups hijacked the because in, in Washington you always hear like the proud boys and all that stuff mm-hmm. they're actually based in they're based in Washington um, just, and they literally come over the bridge like they're Iowa and Illinois so a lot of them that's kind of where it manifests but there's still like peaceful protests going on all around Portland that you don't hear about it's because it's easy to cover something that looks like a war zone versus something that's really more impactful and a lot of that stuff unfortunately deflects what's really happening but I think some of that some of these groups that's their purpose is to just kind of draw attention or you know I mean you see some of these videos where you see like white people bringing BLM you know to make it look like Black Lives Matter people and it's just and and you know the news I understand it's a huge burden um but you're right. You gotta really like look at everything. Like I mean, there's there's obviously more to the story because you don't just walk down Portland all of a sudden you're in a fucking war zone. Right. I mean, I've gone downtown and I work downtown and I walk on there for a year or two and there's always protests going on and they would hey there's a protest going on avoid this area. It wasn't until George Floyd became national news. Um. So let uh, in forty five minutes in the conversation. Let's talk about your new book. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> Wait, that, you know, remember that thing that you were coming on the show to promote? <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about the new book, Jason. <laughs> well, it's uh, so it's based off Filipino folklore. It's called Vampires of Portlandia. Uh-huh. It's based off Filipino folklore. Uh, called Aswang, which in Filipino, in Tagalog, is uh, shapeshift. And I, being a Filipino American, I'd never even heard of it until probably about, uh, about five years ago uh-huh. on a show on the show Grimm, which coincidentally was filmed in Portland. Uh, Sergeant Wu, who is Filipino on the show and in real life, um, he sees <laughs> Aswang. And I remember calling. 
show Ed in real life. <laughs> that's the way. Yeah. That's, that's the way it works dad, out. Like, like, I call my dad. I'm like, hey, what is this? I've never heard of this. And he's like, oh, just, just something that your grandma would tell to scare you. He said it very nonchalantly. And so I just started like researching it. I'm like, this is kind of cool. Well, anyway, in Portland, in late fall through spring, thousands and thousands of crows roost downtown. Uh-huh. It's just the way it's designed is a big water source and uh, of buildings and kind of just creates this environment where crows can become safe from predators. And like, just if you're ever bored, just Google Portland crows and you'll see just thousands. And I think like last year was the most um, since they've been recording it, like 20,000 crows or so. Like every block, if you look up on trees and buildings, it just looks like an Alfred Hitchcock movie. It's uh-huh. really weird. And so when I would go to work at 6.30 in the morning and it was still dark and you're just walking downtown and you hear the cause in unison or they're echoing off the building. And, and I remember one time a car was coming down and turned the corner and the light headlights hit a crow and it cast like this huge crow on the building. And then when the car turned, it almost just kind of weirdly morphed into something different. It just kind of get, got me thinking like, oh, that's weird. So I, I kind of started, you know, one of the offlines of the werebeast turning the crows or dogs, coincidentally, birds or dogs. And, and so that's kind of where the story manifested. And down in downtown Portland, there's a lot of these couriers on bicycle rickshaws. And so I'm like, oh, that'd be perfect uh, setup for this main, main character to ride around Portland on a rickshaw delivering food while all these crows are around. And, and that's kind of where the story started. So it's called Vampires of Portland. It is a, a little bit of murder mystery involved, but really it's just introducing this folklore to mainstream media because um, there really wasn't a lot of uh, resources or, or films or anything that really depict it other than like little tidbits and like grim or I think even Twilight they mentioned or something but uh, that's kind of what I want to do my goal is to just kind of get other Filipino authors to start writing about stuff to kind of put out there especially with the big issue in publishing with a lack of diversity and right. you know a lot of uh, pure persons of color not you know writing books that person of color should write stuff like that so it was just uh, something that I wanted to write um, one of my favorite movies probably my favorite movies The Lost Boys yeah, I love the show like Supernatural it was just kind of urban fantasy but not traditional fantasy where the storyline goes off in tangents for 25 pages um, I just wanted to write a cool little freaking story right. um, scene by scene as if like a viewers digesting a movie now, um, as a person of color, have you felt any bias against you or any particular stereotypes or any or bigotry towards you? Um, I mean, just, I mean, obviously in general, but particularly within the writing and the creative communities. Um, not directly. One, uh, so one of the traits that Filipino people have is they point with their lips, uh-huh. which is one of the things that they just, you know, point with their lips, they kind of pucker them and then point them when they're trying to point at something. Uh-huh. And in the book, I, I did that a couple of times, and one of the editors um, made a comment about it. And But it, she wasn't, like, very derogatory or, or negative about it. It was more just, like, trying to understand, like, is this something, you know, I don't understand this reference type thing. And so after I explained it, I think she, you know, like, oh, okay. But directly, no. But I've read these weird stories where... Um, uh, a person of color had queried a novel and then like a year later she had gotten rejected it was a white editor and then uh, she had gotten rejected and then about a year later she posted this thing from it was from that white editor about a year later saying just going back and basically kind of evolving her mindset saying you know when I rejected this I wasn't looking at it from a person of color's point of view I was looking at it through the lens of a white person mm-hmm. and so it was just long, it was really interesting to me. So has it ever happened? I don't know. But nothing directly where it was like, you know, get away out of here, Filipino, you know. <laughs> uh, it was, it was uh, you know, but, you know, I, I, do I have issues with a white person or an African-American person writing about an uh, Asian person experience? I don't know. You know, I always see these discussions like, you know, that person of color should be writing about that person of color. Well, what if, you know, I mean, if they're perfectly qualified and they're getting all the nuances and they get the right sensitivity readers and all that stuff, then I think then I don't have a big issue about it. And one of the books, one of, an author I really like is Matt Ruff, uh, Lovecraft Country. And um, and 
you know, it's pulled from the perspective of an African-American. Mm-hmm. And I was watching this kind of panel with him and Christopher Warren, and it was kind of brought up, and he's like, you know, I don't know what else I can do. I'm not an African-American, you know. I can, all I can do is do the research and try to do it justice. Right. And, and I, you know, I, part of me agrees, and I think it's just kind of like that same degree of cancel culture that's all or nothing. You know, like, fuck you, you know. Like, come on. Right. <laughs> if you do your... Right, it's not like I am, or you're writing a book about Filipino folklore and you're going, ha, 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 all you Filipinos can't write about it, you know? Right. Well, whatever. So I think it just, I think when you are acquiring a piece of work or something, I mean, I think if you look at it from those different perspectives, then I think it will further the the progress. But from my own experience, no, I don't think so. But I've always written a lot of white characters because I grew up in white society. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I started okay, I think, you know, I want to explore this um, because I'm a Filipino-American. You know? And there's, there wasn't a lot of stories. When I was younger, I didn't see a lot of stories about with Filipino main characters. What um, about... That's, you know, kind of my goal is to do that. Um, what about writing women characters? I mean, I know, um, you know, what I'll typically do, if I'm writing... Um, uh, a chapter, or I'm writing a story or a book or whatever from a female character's perspective. I tend to have a group of um, of women that I'm friends with who are also writers who I'll go to and I'll, I'll send them the stuff that I'm writing to ask them, does this ring true? Does this ring true from yeah. a, from a woman's perspective? Um, right. because right. I, I mean, I'm not a woman, so I don't, I don't, I don't know like the intricacies of, I can write from the perspective of a human being or from having, you know, been married to and dating women and be, had sisters and, you know, whatever, and try and like pick that up. But I don't know specifically. And so I'll tend to send it off to, to them and like about a half dozen, you know, female writers I know that I, you know, will say like, hey, does this sound right? Uh, is there something that right. I'm missing right. here? Do you do that, no, like, like, you know, when you're yeah, sending it exactly. off? It's the same with, uh, with writing an African-American character mm-hmm. or a gay character. If not, you know? Right, right. But I agree, as long as you do that diligence and try to do it justice and get that feedback and take that feedback, you know, into account, then I personally, I, I don't have an issue with that. I know you know, some people do, but I don't. It's well written. Um, one of the things I have noticed, though, is a lot of white authors, specifically like older ones, mm-hmm. whenever they write a person of care of color, it's always like somewhere in the first description. Like he was an Asian man, but right. like, you know, it was like call out to it. But when you a person of color writing a person of color, it's almost like it's just there. It's you know, like when I say he pointed his lips. Um, it's just one of the things that you either pick up or you don't, and I'm not drawing attention to it. He was a Filipino person, you know? And, like, there's a lot of times, I don't know, if you, when you were, you're just like, why do you even know that? Right. Like, if guy's Asian or not, there's nothing to do with the story. Right. Yeah, that's so, true. Like, a lot of times, I, and I, I'm not... Because I'm not one of those. I, I'm not one of those authors. I like action. I like to propel the story. I'm not one of those people that yeah. spends like three pages describing the hem of someone's garment, or you know, uh, no, it, no. it goes into a lot of that detail. And I know you're the same way. I mean, having edited your stuff yeah. and having read your stuff before, you're like me. You tend to be more propulsive. You tend to move things forward and don't have really yeah. elaborate descriptions in regard to stuff. And I think if that establishes more of a relationship with the reader because it allows some gaps for the reader to get a picture of what's going on or what the person's like or or really, you know, what they look like in a lot of ways, you know? Um, right. right, I agree. I mean, and that's the thing, though. It's like, you know, I have a friend who reads reviews all the time, and I'm like, why? You know, I'm like, I'm not going to go back and change it because they got a shitty review. Right. <laughs> I mean, if, if it's a good one, yeah, I'll, I'll you know, maybe share it. But that's just the thing. It's like, I, I don't, everyone has an opinion. And one of the, I, I usually, I listen to uh, Stephen King on writing on Audible yeah. once a year or so, maybe. And one of the things he says that I always think about is like, when you write the story, um, it's yours. When you publish the story, it's everybody's. Right. And that's true. It's like, once it's out there, I don't give two shits what you have to say about it. I'm not changing it, you know? Right. Like, okay, thanks. Well, <laughs> yeah. Mean, or whatever. 
Well, and Stephen King's never been a vampire as far as I know, so but yet he seems to write them realistically. Um, or, or a zombie, or a, you know, and that's that's the thing is like you, you're, there has to be some sort of suspension of of disbelief in regard to being a writer or putting yourself into a world or creating a universe. Um, and I think uh, as long as you do do that due diligence in terms of any sort of connection to reality and get the perspectives of the people um, in whose you know perspe- in whose position you're writing. Um, then I think that that uh, you know that really a writer's realm is is the world um, and any world that they can create you know and and oftentimes it allows people to you know see things from a different perspective or to experience things from the perspective of someone that that they're not or um, you know doing things that they wouldn't ever do and that's part of the that's part of the appeal of writing of fantasy of anything you know. Right, um, right, I agree. So, um, no, you you talk about uh, your current book. Had you have you heard the theory that birds are not real and that they're actually that all the birds died and were replaced with drones, and that would fit in with you know Portland being um, being uh, monitored by uh, you know clandestine forces in the government, all these birds being around. <laughs> I've you, never heard that. You gotta look at look up birds are not real on the internet. There's a whole bunch of sites about it. They they <laughs> they range from the satirical to the completely crazy. Um, that sounds fascinating. So looking at some of some of your work, um, what are you most happy about in terms of the current book? Um, in terms of some of the books that you've written before, and um, you know if, if you're like a lot of people listening to this podcast, I know hard it is it hard as it is to believe some of them may not be familiar with your work or or mine for that matter. Um, what would you recommend? People ask me that all the time if they've never read a, any of my books. They're like, um, well, which one should I start with? And I'll usually recommend be like, okay, well, what kind? What do you like? Um, yeah, what do you like? What, right. what are right. you know? Um, if someone's never heard of you or never read your stuff, tell me, tell me, and tell the people listening some books that can kind of like get them introduced to Jason Tanamore's work. Well, I, I think it's similar. It's like I write in different genres. Um, I'm proud of each one of them. You know, if, if you were to say which, I would probably say Vampires of Portland because I think it's a book I've never really tried to write before. Um, uh, I love the drama dolls and I still think that's one of my favorite books um, basically about a guy whose wife dies and he deals with their death by dressing up as a cheerleader and robbing houses and there's so many things that went into it when writing it but I love the way it turned out and and I, I don't know it's just something that I, I, I love that story but I love Vampires of Portland it's a totally different one and it would be the same question as like well, what types of stuff you read because you might get two different answers depending on what you say right um, but I would say pick up Vampires of Portland because it just came out, and then we can, and then we can discuss from there. <laughs> yeah. So where can people get Vampires of Portlandia, your new book? Um, and there are in some select stores uh, in Portland, but if you just went to Panamore.com, um, there's links to various online sites you can buy it from. Okay. So it's uh, yeah, it's basically if you just Google Vampires of Portland, you'll you'll land on. Me basically. So you go to Tanamore, T A N A M O R dot com, correct? Correct. And then Vampires of Portlandia is the name of the new book. Um, what else you got correct. going on, ma'am? Um, nothing, not really, just working. Um, uh, I, I have another novel finished that I'm kind of pitching. It's uh, called, uh, well, tentative titles called American as Egg Rules and Rice. And it's about a Filipino kid who grows up dancing in Filipino folk dances. But he's so embarrassed by it, he doesn't tell anyone about, about it until he meets uh, uh, his, a love interest who is just fascinated with people in general and family in general. And, and he kind of has this uh, kind of this fork in the road, like, should I tell her about it? You know, and because he's so embarrassed by anything that she might. And it's just, it's just, and it's, it's, it's oddly uh, uh, based on a real story because I used to dance <laughs> and don't you know, dance as a uh-huh. kid. And I never, I never told anyone about it. Um, so that's kind of what I'm pitching now, but otherwise, uh, um, I, I don't know. 
I don't really have anything on the in the pipeline other than that. Well, I don't know, Jason. I remember you getting drunk several times and telling me all about your Filipino dance time. <laughs> cool. Um, well, thanks a lot for being on the show, bud. No, no problem. Hey, anything else you want to add? Tell tell the the vast listening audience out there that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I will say this: the Vampires of Portland is not a urban traditional urban fantasy i would call it more of a supernatural type book mm-hmm. um it doesn't have a lot of the uh, nuances of fantasies you know where there's multiple storylines going in a thousand directions and, and all these things that are happening um it's you know if you like shows like the lost like the lost boys and grim and the crow and all those kind of types urban fantasies in the sense that it's a fantasy world happening in a city atmosphere then i think you'll like this Cool. Jason, thanks a lot for being on the show, man. All right, man. Thanks, man. And thank you for listening to QC Uncut, uncut, unedited, uncensored conversation with local newsmakers. My guest today was Jason Tannemore, a good friend of mine and the author of Vampires of Portlandia, an excellent new book you should go and check out. You can go to tannemore.com. That's T-A-N-A-M-O-R.com. And, of course, it's available on uh, Amazon and various other streaming, um, various other places you can get books you can go in any bookstore and order it vampires of portlandia by jason tannemore i highly recommend it and again thanks a lot for listening to qc uncut i am your host sean leary have a great day